0: We're looking at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, and that might be a familiar passage to some. But the reason we're looking at Isaiah chapter 6 this morning is I have always looked at Isaiah 6 as the ultimate worship service. It is the ultimate worship experience. You see, what happens in Isaiah chapter 6 is the heavens are pulled back, and Isaiah, the great prophet, catches a glimpse of what worship in heaven looks like. And if you weren't here last week, the reason we're talking about worship is we dived into a series entitled Created for Worship, because I want us to understand why we do what we do, For a lot of you, just getting here this morning was a struggle. For some of you, you said, is it even worth coming this morning? And what I want to happen here at Coal Ridge is that we develop such a culture of worship that this becomes the high point of our week. That we develop such a culture of worship that you in your mind and in your heart go, I can't imagine going another week without worship. That Sunday morning, there's a lot of things you miss in life but it's not going to be worship on Sunday morning, that this is the very thing that allows me to live and breathe and function in life. And so we're asking the question, how were we created for worship? What, why do we do what we do? And does it matter? And so we're looking at the ultimate worship service, in my opinion, here in Isaiah chapter six, we'll look at the whole passage together. Verse 1, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us and then i said here am i send me and he said go and say to this people keep on hearing but do not understand keep on seeing but do not perceive make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind lest they see with their ears and eyes and hear with their eyes ears Let's do that again. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and forsaken places are men and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord it stands forever. Mike Cosper, a pastor, said, a church's worship tells a story. And then he goes on to say, if the church's worship tells a story, the real question then is, what is the story that it's telling? A church's worship tells a story. The question then is, what is the story that it's telling? You see, last week we defined, we had a working definition of worship. Worship, as we defined it last week, is ascribing or assigning ultimate worth and value to someone or something so that when we gather for worship, we recognize that we are all are worshiping 365 days, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are all worshiping something. The question is, when we come into worship God, when we come into this space, is our heart and our mind captured in such a way where we assign and ascribe ultimate worth to the God that has not only made us but created us? See, worship shapes us. And worship has the power to transform us. And the reason it has the power to shape us and transform us is because ultimately what we're doing on Sunday morning, whether you realize it or not, is we're telling a story. You didn't even know that, did you? Do you realize from the moment you walk in to the moment we leave, we are telling a story? From the call to worship and the welcome to the benediction at the end and everything else in between, it is telling a story and it was the story that not only transforms you, but it's the story that transformed Isaiah here in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. The worship of God and the telling of the story from beginning to end shaped and transformed Isaiah forever. But we have to understand the context. What was going on here? In verse 1 it says, in the year King Uzziah died, and I've mentioned this before, that nothing is put in Scripture randomly. It all has a purpose, and that purpose marks, that date marks for us and for Isaiah something very significant that happened. You see, King Uzziah was a very popular king. He was put on the throne at the age of 16, and he reigned for 52 years. And in those 52 years, it was a golden age for the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. It was a a time of prosperity, it was a time of great wealth. King Uzziah defeated the, the Philistines. He had an army and military, uh, the, the, which was the envy of the world, a global superpower. It was an abundance of wealth way beyond their needs. Life was good. And the reason it's so significant to understand that this is the context in which Isaiah gets a glimpse of God is you can imagine the panic. You can manage, manage the people scrambling. The great king Uzziah has died. The one who has led Israel into a golden era of bliss and prosperity is gone. And now it's time to Panic. And what Isaiah wants us to understand, it's in that year, the year of people panicking. It's in that year of people wondering who will replace this great king who reigned for 52 years. It's in that year that Isaiah looked up and said, you thought King Uzziah was a great king, but you haven't seen anything yet. Let me show you the king of kings. Let me show you the Lord of lords. It's in that year that Isaiah sees the great king reigning on his throne And here comes Isaiah. Isaiah is the great prophet. He's known as the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. He was known as the prophet with the golden voice. And you can probably imagine, if I was Isaiah, and was entrusted with the things Isaiah was entrusted with, there probably was a level of arrogance for Isaiah. He probably thought, hey, the king's gone, people are looking for answers, I probably can be the one to deliver. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah... The man who's never lost for words, the man with the golden voice, the greatest prophet, all of a sudden, in an instant, sees a vision of someone greater than himself, greater than King Uzziah, and greater than anything he's ever laid his eyes on. And it's the beginning of the story that begins to transform his life as he sees God high and lifted up. And the things that we see here in Isaiah chapter 6, there's four things in particular that shape Isaiah's worship. There's four things that shape the story of Isaiah's worship and actually shape our worship, whether you realize it or not, here at Coal Ridge. The first thing that shapes the worship of Isaiah and shapes our worship here at Coal Ridge is adoration, we see it in verses 1 through 3. He sees God high and lifted up. Like I said, the king is gone. The great king is gone. And Isaiah's heart, in an instant, when he sees God here in, on his throne in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, his heart in one instance is captured by something more beautiful, more majestic, more holy, more glorious than he's ever laid his eyes on before. You see, that's why we do a call to worship at the beginning. That's why we do a song of adoration at the beginning, like we did this morning. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Why? Was that just a random song we selected for this morning? No. It's because all throughout the week, your heart is adoring things smaller than God. And it's at the very top of the service that we want to capture that heart. We want to capture that mind and say, No. No, there is someone greater more beautiful, more majestic, more glorious than anything your heart and eyes have laid eyes on this week. We want your heart to be captured by something more glorious. And Isaiah's heart was certainly captured by something more glorious. See, the word glory here, the whole earth is full of his glory. The word glory means weightiness or or greatness, the heaviness of God, the majesty of God, the majesty of his beauty and his splendor. And when The angels, when Isaiah sees the angels, here's what's interesting about them. They're covering everything, their face and their feet. You see, what's interesting about the angels is they've never sinned. They technically have nothing to hide from. They have no guilt. But even in the presence of God, the holiness and the glory and the majesty of God, even in his presence, they find it right and good to cover themselves. And the Hebrew says in verse 3, holy, holy, holy. Anytime we see the repetition in the Hebrew, it's, it's the author's way of emphasizing the attributes and the character of God. He is holy, holy, holy. There is nothing more glorious or nothing more splendid, nothing more beautiful, nothing more glorious than God, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory why we do what we do on a Sunday morning when we worship God. We're called to worship. We're brought into the throne room of grace to worship God with the, with the prayer being that your heart is captured by something greater and someone greater than anyone that you've ever laid eyes on before. So we're captured by the beauty and the majesty of God Isaiah is transformed by the adoration of God. The second thing we see in the story of Isaiah's worship, we see as soon as his heart and mind are captured by something more glorious than anything he's laid eyes on, what happens in verses 5 through 7? There's a moment of confession. What does he say in the presence of God? He says, woe is me. See, all throughout the Bible, when we see the word woe, it's always somebody pronouncing it upon someone else. But here Isaiah has no choice but to pronounce it upon himself. You see, the word woe there is a word of condemnation. Isaiah looks at his life. Here's the prophet with the golden voice, the man who could do no wrong, That probably he thought in his mind to answer for Israel, and even he is going in the presence of the glory of God. He's saying woe. He pronounces condemnation upon himself. And he says, in the presence of God, woe is me. That's why we have a time in our service dedicated to confession, that as soon as we are captured and adore God, joyful, joyful, we adore thee and we capture the glory and the holiness and the majesty of God, we should be a proper and right response is to say, woe is me, I'm undone. There's no way that I can stand in the presence of the glory and the holiness of God. And so Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. And then something amazing happens. It says in verse 6 that the seraphim, these burning angelic creatures, that one of the seraphim takes from the altar a burning coal. The fire of God is taken by the seraphim. And he starts flying 100 miles an hour towards Isaiah. And you probably can imagine Isaiah's posture You can probably envision Isaiah bracing himself for what? Death. The death he felt he rightly deserved. And as the fire is coming at him with this angelic creature holding it, the seraphim, he's probably closing his eyes, squinting, bracing himself to be rocked, to be destroyed, whatever it might be. And in an instant of being crushed by the holiness of God... And the glory of God, in an instant, he is purified and he's cleansed and he's made whole. And it says in verse 7 Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away. That's why we move from confession to what? Assurance of pardon. Because although a proper response should be to feel undone, to be un- unclean, that we deserve death and the punishment of God, we also believe because of Jesus. Where does this, where does the burning coal come from? He takes it from the altar of God. Where's the altar? The altar is the place of sacrifice. It's recognizing that there would be one that would come from the altar of God that would sacrifice himself for you. And it touches his lips. And he's made whole. He's cleansed. His sin is covered and forgiven. It's a beautiful moment in our worship service where we can confess before God. And in the same moment... Also be assured because of Jesus Christ, of his pardon and of his righteousness on our behalf. What a beautiful thing. Only the, only the worship of Jesus can bring that. Only the worship of Jesus can transform an individual that where in one instance we are crushed by the holiness and perfection of God, but at the same moment redeemed with his amazing love and grace. So Isaiah is transformed by the adoration of God. He is transformed by the confession and the assurance of pardon. And then it moves on in verse 8. There is a moment where he has been so transformed by his confession and by his assurance of pardon, thinking that he deserves death and thinking that he is about to receive death, but then receiving the pardon of God. In verse 8, he is ready now. His heart and mind are ready to what? To listen, to receive the word of God, to receive the word of God preached to him from God himself. And it says in verse 8, I heard the voice. Now he's ready to hear the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he says, here I am, send me. We move to the part of the worship service where Isaiah is ready to receive the word of God and ready to respond to the word of God. There should always be a response to the word of God. Once it is preached, there should be a response. And for Isaiah, Isaiah didn't even need to know the job description. You naturally would probably have thought when God asked the question, who will go for us, a proper um, response, a legitimate response to the message of the word of God preached should have been, well, show me the job description and I'll do it. Tell me what it's going to be like. And when we read the rest of the passage, he probably would have been wise to find out what lie ahead. But why doesn't he do that? Isaiah was so captured, so transformed by the overwhelming nature of God's love and grace and forgiveness. It didn't matter. I'll go anywhere. If if God is that holy and that majestic, and that great, and he welcomes me, a man of unclean lips living amongst the people of unclean lips, and he can pardon me? I'll go to the ends of the earth for that, God. You see, there is a proper listening and receiving, but also a proper response. The richness of God's mercy and love compels Isaiah to answer the call of God. Here I am. Send me. I don't need to know where. I don't need to know what it's going to look like. Just Send me. Just as a side note, there's two things that I don't want to miss in Isaiah's response. The first thing is this, the availability of Isaiah. The availability of Isaiah to be available. See, what had happened to Isaiah, that this worship experience was so transforming in his life, was so It was was so transformative in the life of Isaiah that in one instance, the needs of the kingdom became greater than his needs. And only when the needs of the kingdom become greater than your needs, can you really be available to the kingdom of God. The needs of the kingdom became greater in one instant than, than his needs. And it was through that where Isaiah said, I am more than available. Send me. I don't need to know where, I don't need to know how, I don't need to know what it's going to look like, send me. There was an availability to Isaiah's response. But Isaiah not only was available, there was a dependability. You see, we don't read it here in chapter 6, but Isaiah, all throughout the book of Isaiah, will remain faithful to this call. And we read it in verses 11 through 13. It's kind of a doomsday scenario, right? You're going to go out. Nobody's going to listen, and the place is going to be destroyed, but stay faithful. And not one time did Isaiah waver from the call. There was a sense that he was dependable. Why? Because he was transformed by the worship of God that not only made him readily available, but absolutely dependable. Do you know what one of the biggest problems in the North American church is today? Is that the response of the people of God... To serve and to give. To serve sacrificially and to give sacrificially is always tailored around your needs. It's always tailored around our needs. Your convenience, your wants, your desires. I want to encourage you with something. Would you be so captured by the worship of God would you be so transformed that when the needs arise to serve or to give, that the needs of the kingdom begin to dictate your own needs? So that when you are asked to serve and you go, but I'm traveling that weekend, what if, and this is a radical concept, I know, what if your travel plans were tailored around the needs for the kingdom of God? It's a radical concept. What if instead of going, I'd love to give more, but you know, my lifestyle, it just doesn't fit into the way we, we live and the things that we've set up as a priority. What if, as is radical, what if our lifestyle was tailored around the way we were called to give? And I say, in order to give to the kingdom of God, for the flourishing of the community and for the city of Fort Lauderdale, I'm going to give in such a way that I'm going to have to somehow change the way I live. And the priorities of my life. Availability and dependability. Listening and responding in such a way that it transforms our life. And lastly, this worship service ends with a blessing. He is sent out. And you go, well, where's the blessing? Where's the promise? You see, every worship service ends with a promise, right? I stand up here and we give a benediction. It's a good word that we're sent out with. But you read this 11 through 13 and you go, where's the promise? Where's the good news? All I read in verses 11 through 13 is um, that I'm going to go out and preach and nobody's going to listen to me, that God's going to bring destruction and devastation, that it's going to turn the world upside down. Where's the good news? Where's the promise of hope? And it's found at the very end. At the end of verse 13, it says, although a tenth remain, it will be burned again like a terebinth or oak whose stump remains when it is felled. But the holy seed is its stump. You see, the promise for all of us in responding to the call of God is that although we come in broken and weary and in many ways feeling dead inside, the promise for the people of God is that we worship a Jesus that is not dead but alive. You see, the promise for Isaiah, and Isaiah probably had no idea how it was going to work itself out, the promise for Isaiah was a resurrection promise. The promise for Isaiah was, even in the midst of death and destruction and dying, that one day there will be life out of death. And that was the promise for Isaiah, that one day out of the deadness of this world will come about life. And little did he know, thousands of years later, that God would send his son to die, but to be raised again so that you might live. You see, the message that we are telling every single Sunday from the top of the worship service to the bottom of the worship service and everything in between is this story that Jesus was dead but now alive and that that story... That that shaped the worship of Isaiah can be the very story that shapes your worship as well, and this is why we gather on Sunday mornings. This is why we worship together. Why it's so critical? Because we're not just coming here singing random songs and praying random prayers and listening to random messages. There is a purpose from beginning to end, and it's the story of all stories that shapes. Our worship that I pray shapes your life forever. You see, it's the message of Jesus and him crucified. Remember when Isaiah said, woe is me? And he was forgiven anyway? We often think God kind of just dismissed that. He didn't. You see, the message of the gospel tells us this. That when Isaiah pronounced the woe upon himself, that woe, That word of condemnation was transferred from Isaiah to Jesus Christ. God doesn't simply ignore the word of condemnation. He doesn't simply ignore the word of woe that Isaiah pronounces on his life. God, in his grace, takes that word of condemnation and he places it upon Christ. So that for you this morning, whatever story you brought into this place, and we all have a story, stories that break us, stories that for some of you this morning are ashamed of, we bring a story, we bring a past into the worship of the people of God every single Sunday. And the good news is, regardless of the story that you brought in, we leave with a greater story, overshadowing our story, that your story can become his story, and his story can become your story, that you would be shaped by a greater story, the story of all stories. I'll end with this. Scott Sauls tells a story about a woman by the name of Mary who came to his church. And Mary had fallen on some hard times. Mary had lived her life with disappointment and rejection. Mary was abandoned by her mother and father at an early age and was years later abandoned by her husband. She was left to raise two boys all by herself, and she had continued to make mistakes and make bad decisions, but she thought, maybe I'll try out church. Maybe that'll make a difference in my life. And so Mary goes to church, takes her two boys, checks them into the nursery, and she enjoys the worship experience. But when she goes to pick up her boys in the nursery the nursery director has a look of condemnation and disappointment on her face. Literally has to carry the two boys out to the mom in the lobby of the nursery and said, we didn't do so well today. We had some problems keeping our hands to ourselves, toys are broken, and it wasn't a good experience. And the mom, not knowing what to do, there's about 20 moms in the nursery, and if you're a mom out there, you know that feeling of being absolutely humiliated in front of other moms and parents, as if they don't have the same problems with their kids, but that's another story. But you know that feeling. And the mom, not knowing what to do, snaps at the kids and has a meltdown. And being even more humiliated than she was before, all she knows to do is grab the boys by the arm, and she leaves crying And everybody looks at each other and says, well, I guess she won't be back. There was one nursery volunteer that saw this whole thing happen. And she found out her information, and she got a hold of Mary's contact information, and she wrote a a note to Mary, and the note says this. Dear Mary, I know last Sunday was tough, but I wanted to thank you for coming. I wanted to thank you for bringing your boys. It took a lot of courage. I know they had a hard time, and I know your reaction was not what you meant it to be, but it was honest and it was real. And I thank you for that. I needed to see your tears that morning. Our church needed to see your tears that morning. There's sometimes in my work that I question why we do what we do as a church, and if the whole thing is worth it, and you reminded me that day this is why we do what we do. Thank you for the gift that you gave me. Thank you for worshiping with us this past Sunday. Mary reluctantly came back. Five years later, Mary became the director of the nursery at that church. We have no idea what is happening right now has the power to transform lives. It has the power to transform your life. It has the power to transform my life. It has the power to transform the lives of the people that are not only here, but we pray by God's grace we'll bring them here. This is why we do what we do every single Sunday. Is it worth it? You better believe it's worth it because it's the only thing that has the power to transform our lives. The story of all stories, we are telling and singing and praying and proclaiming week after week after week for people that need to hear, that regardless of what their story is in life, there is a greater story. And so that your life can be forever transformed by the worship of God and shaped by this story so that we together can forever sing, this is my story and this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long.